Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in the third episode of Series 3, we're looking at all things ESG, that's environmental, social and corporate governance, and the ramifications for financial services firms and their risk and compliance functions. Now, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Helen Chan, Lindsay Rogerson and Henry Engler to take a global look at the developing issues and what good is beginning to look like for managing ESG as a strategic priority. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. Virtually every industry is affected by the collective efforts of governments to tackle climate change. That's no surprise to anyone. And the effects have become all too stark in 2021. Now, those efforts to tackle things like climate change have been collectively badged as ESG. Now, in last week's episode, we spoke about diversity, which has also fallen under the umbrella of ESG and is another challenge for risk and compliance functions. Now, in this episode, we're going to consider ESG in a much wider sense. Financial services firms are, for instance, heavily involved in managing the transition from a fossil fuel dominated economy to one supported by renewable energy. And given this responsibility, financial authorities across the world have made it clear, and I should say crystal clear, that a broad range of issues, including climate change, human rights, human diversity, all need to be managed alongside other more traditional risks. And one of the many challenges is the multiplicity of proposed common standards and and indeed metrics for sustainability related disclosures. And such disclosure requirements come as an ESG related investments have completely exploded. Sustainable investments in 2020 reached an estimated 3.5 trillion, that's trillion with a T, dollars or more than one third of all assets under management in five of the world's biggest markets. Now, it may be stating the entirely obvious, but climate risk really is unlike all other financial risks. Its uniqueness and complexity, the long-term nature of the risks make quantifying the threat one of the biggest hurdles that regulators must overcome in developing new rules and regulations. And it's not really helped by the fact there's a very mixed approach internationally. In the UK and the European Union, there's been some good progress, to be fair, towards requiring financial services firms to report how they're managing climate risk. In the US, work is gathering pace to create rules and requirements on disclosure and incorporating the effects of climate change into risk management frameworks. Then in Asia, the picture equally mixed. Some countries, such as Singapore and Philippines, have incorporated environmental risk into their supervisory expectations for banks' risk management systems. Then again, other jurisdictions are still struggling, given the lack of data standardisation, collection and disclosure rules. So given the huge breadth of all of this, let's start by looking at some of the differing approaches to geography or by geography. So, Henry, in a bit more detail, what is the United States up to? Right, Susanna, thanks very much. Um, Over here, we have two financial regulators who are effectively charged with uh, developing new rules on climate risk. Um, One is the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the other is the Federal Reserve. 
Now, the SEC has promised um, to provide the industry with new disclosure rules on climate risk. It's working towards that objective. Um, the proposals are supposedly going to merge probably later this year, at which point, of course, that will be open for industry comment. And uh, then effectively, at some point, I suppose, next year, there will be some final rules um, that financial firms will have to abide by. But it's a very, it's a very contentious issue. Um, <clears throat> there are some who argue that the SEC has no authority to issue new disclosure rules. I think that under Chairman Gensler, they're basically ignoring um, those protests, uh, given the importance of this. Um, but you could expect that this will not be an easy path because there's a lot of industry uh, resistance. Um, it, it will depend greatly on the specificity of the disclosure rules, what the SEC would want to see from um, not only financial firms, but all uh, companies uh, in terms of their climate risk policies and management of you know, in environmental issues. Um, so that's, that's one part of the, the picture here, challenge here. The second from the Federal Reserve is more focused on how banks manage their exposure to industries and companies that are exposed to, to climate um, issues and factors, such as oil and gas companies, such as companies that are situated in parts of the country where there have been huge environmental you know, catastrophes, such as hurricanes in the south or the, the wildfires in the west. And what we've heard from the Fed so far is that um, they are focused on what they're calling scenario analysis as a tool that they and banks could use in trying to measure uh, the impact of, of climate risk on their portfolios and putting it within an um, overall risk management framework. There's and scenario analysis is something that's being used by regulators all around the globe. Um, it's, it's already well entrenched in Europe, um, UK, and it's, it's a tool that has been agreed, I think, by many um, to be perhaps the most effective in trying to determine what the risks are um, in, in terms of climate change. Um, so here again, uh, the Fed is working on this. Uh, we've seen drips and drabs of information from various speeches, um, but we have yet to see any sort of final uh, guidance or recommendations uh, from them. Again, I think this is probably something that will emerge either late this year or early next year. So that's pretty much the two important um, strands here in the U.S., Thank you. So still very much a watching brief for the US. So Helen, how does Asia compare and what are the Asian jurisdictions doing on all of this? So Susanna, Asian jurisdictions are a very essential part of the global effort to address climate change. The region has the highest population growth and houses several economic and investment hubs. 
However, many industries that are traditionally seen as high carbon emitters, such as coal and palm oil production, are still dominant parts of the economy in many Asian countries, which actually makes it all the more important to pay attention to policy developments in this part of the world. The Asia-Pacific region is actually quite diverse, and many jurisdictions are currently in different phases of ESG policy development. As well, their ESG needs can vary actually quite significantly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. For example, regulators in Indonesia are under pressure to address climate risk and labor issues in the palm oil industry. So much of their focus has been on developing sustainability standards in that area. Meanwhile, in jurisdictions with financial hubs such as Hong Kong and Singapore, their regulators have been very much focused on green finance. Separately, China earlier this year said that it would work with the European Union to publish a green taxonomy by the end of this year. And that really highlights the need for consistent standards to evaluate ESG, whether we're talking about green finance or climate risk or social sustainability. Thank you. I think that the the thread on common standards is going to be a big uh, one throughout this entire podcast. Um, Lindsay, UK, European Union, slightly further ahead, perhaps, on all of this? I think I think it is fair to say that they are ahead. And it's certainly, um, in a couple of conferences I've listened to, rec- attended recently, um, we, we very much heard the message from both European regulators and European banks that they certainly think there's some kind of advantage for them in being ahead or being perceived to be ahead in the ESG space. So so what does that being ahead actually look like? Well, it means in terms of the EU that we have a taxonomy or we have one of the taxonomies that is coming um, and, and we have something called the sustainable financial, I've forgotten it again, <laughs> I did this last Disclosure week. Disclosure regulation. Thank you, Susanna. <laughs> I've obviously got a mental block. Um, we did a, in series two, we did a whole podcast on that, so on the SFDR. So I won't repeat all of it, but just for the global audience, the, the, the key parts of, of the SFDR, which are pertinent here, are it requires all investment uh, managers to basically put their investment funds into one of three buckets. So there's a, a bucket six, a bucket eight, and a bucket nine. Don't ask me why it's not one, two, three. Who knows? Um, so Bucket six, basically, those products make no ESG claims. Um, bucket eight, those those um, funds make some sort of ESG claim. And bucket nine, those are the funds which are specifically targeting ESG uh, change and uh, an impact. Now, the, the, the issue here, and this was well flagged by the industry, was that everything was going to end up in bucket eight. And that's pretty much what has happened. And so we will need more detail and we will need regulators to kind of review these buckets and kick things out. But it's a, it's a good first, you know, it's a good first go through. Firms have had to think about what bucket their, their, fund, their products end up in. The other bit of the um, SFDR, which is relevant here, is something called the um, Principal Adverse Impact Indicators. Um, bit of a mouthful, but basically what those are, are 14 um, uh, categories, uh, the majority of them in the environmental space, against which fund managers at an entity level have to uh, uh, check 
every investment that they hold against these and, and try and get the data. And it's and so there's a huge data gathering operation going on behind that, which again, um, well, I know we're going to come on to talk about data uh, later, but, um, you know, it's it's the fact that this is also extraterritorial in that the EU uh, fund managers are required to gather this data for investee companies wherever they are based in the world, you know, is, is, is very helpful. So that's the EU space. Now, interestingly, obviously, the EU, because of Brexit, sorry, the UK, because of Brexit, decided it wasn't going to implement SFDR. However, uh, Chris Cummings, who is the chief executive of the Investment Association here in the UK, was uh, talking at a conference um, just this week where he said, actually, in reality, the vast majority, well, actually, he said the vast majority of his members have implemented SFDR because how are they not going to it just made it just made sense and so in terms of what the uk then decides to do because also the uk didn't take the eu taxonomy we're supposed to be having our own coming out at cop 26 um it, it, so so what what is clear there is again this message from the industry um that that they don't want different things in different regions or even worse, different things within the same region because it, it, it's actually diluting effort. And so on the investment space, um, you know, that's what's happening. Um, I just want to uh, kind of touch on a bit about what's happening with the banks. And Henry, uh, as Henry explained in the US, is a sort of a different track. So what's happening with the banks is we are starting to see either climate stress tests taking place or the groundwork for them being um, being laid. Um, now these are being run on various uh, different uh, scenarios which have been produced by the Network for Greening Financial Systems. Um, the EU conducted one which 1600 banks took part in. It was done on a vote, so they were basically marking their own homework in this first go round. And, um, but what was interesting was, um, Irene um, Hemschreck from the ECB Climate Change Center uh, was talking uh, talking about the results of this first go round um, again just this week, and she uh, she was saying it, it basically it wasn't great. Um, it, uh, she said uh, no bank has full has a full picture on their climate risk yet, and she said none of the banks, so none of that sixteen hundred meet all supervisory. Um, ex all supervisory expectations um, in this space. So again, first go around, uh, very useful. Obviously, we're having a first go around in the UK as well, which won't be how the bank's score won't be made public. But um, the EU is going to have stress tests next year where they're marking it, not the banks. And so it's all starting to come together. And there's going to be a lot more information out there and usable information for investors um, so that yeah, that's the that's where we are in the EU. Thank you very much. I mean, <clears throat> picking up just on one, on one sort of thread that I suspect we really will come back to is what happens if we don't get international standards? Are we in danger of regional silos that don't kind of uh, uh, agree with each other on any level? Um. Well, interestingly enough, the uh, Bank for International Settlements put out a paper last week, the 8th of October, and it was talking about taxonomies. And part of that paper 
um, is, is, is talking about the urgent need for if there isn't going to be a global standard, there needs to be a mapping exercise done really quickly, which would map the various, so it'd map China's standards to the EU standards, to whatever comes out of the US. Um, and and so and they're not the only ones that are talking about this mapping exercise. The the, the um, financial data providers are involved in their own mapping exercise um, around you know. And so it's not an ideal solution, but there is kind of a plan B at the at that global level if we don't get global standards. But obviously the aim is for global global standards. And on the accounting side, obviously we do have the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. Uh, you know, uh, underway there. And so um, I think there is that appreciation of global standards, but whether we see them, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, Susanna, just one quick point um, from the U.S. perspective. I, I think there is a recognition, at least among some of the regulators here, that um, you want to avoid as much as possible this sort of fragmentation around the globe. And just recently, we've had some uh, Federal Reserve officials say that we know we're behind Europe, for example, uh, in all this. And we will likely, although I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but this was uh, Fed Governor Lael Brainard in a speech the, uh, the other week saying, we're likely to learn a lot from our European colleagues about um, implementing, you know, new rules on climate risk. So I think, you know, there's there's a recognition or a sense here that, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. You know, Europe is further along. Um, we can learn and, and perhaps adapt some of the, you know, uh, approaches that, that we see emerging there as well, so. To talking of fragmentation in the States, I mean, we'll come back to Asia in just a moment, but, is there also a danger within the US of a, a sort of state versus federal fragmentation emerging, not just fragmentation between the regulators themselves, but state versus federal? Well, um, interesting question. They, on just in terms of environmental change and climate change, um, we have uh, a number of states here that are focused on these issues. Um, I would say from what I gather is about 12 states that are act, have actively proposed rules and legislation on climate risk. Um, much of it, however, is focused on uh, industries outside of financial services, such as you know, power, electricity, um, building codes, um, transportation, for example. Um, the, there is one state, and, and just, you know, to underscore, California is way out in front of others, no surprise there, on these issues. But New York State um, last year joined um, the network of uh, central banks, the NGFS, I guess, I think is, yeah, <laughs> I struggle too with all these acronyms. Um, Anyway, uh, the, the uh, New York State, the Department of Financial Services, did join that group and actually about a year ago uh, proposed some guidance for uh, New York State financial institutions that very closely resembles what is emerging in terms of having uh, someone on the board and having someone, 
you know, in senior management uh, charged with uh, climate risk. And they proposed this guidance late last year. They put it out for public comment. They've received a lot of public comment so far. And so, um, again, it's sort of watch this space as to what uh, the, the Department of Financial Services in New York will do uh, going forward, whether they will pr propose their own rules and regulations around climate risk. But that's the, that's the only state um, in the union that um, has specifically focused on uh, financial services. Fascinating. Thank you. Um, Helen, obviously, you've, you've already mentioned the spectrum approach across Asia. Um, but given, shall we say, the universal aim and the need to transform the economies from, shall we say, the brown to the green or whatever, what are politi politicians, policymakers, regulators actually going to do? And do they have the data with which to drive those policies yet? So, Susanna, as you've mentioned, and Lindsay and Henry, there is some recognition that there is a lot that other jurisdictions can adapt or learn from EU standards. For example, Hong Kong is working on a taxonomy that will be very much modeled off EU standards, same as China as well. But there are also other countries, smaller countries, where that's not as certain. So places like Indonesia and Malaysia, where in some aspects, they've actually diverged from international practices on sustainability and they're pushing their own standards and that will have an impact on how data is collected and that will obviously also affect how data can be compared across different jurisdictions. And this in turn can also affect ESG ratings, of course, from one provider or from one region to another. And this also in turn will increase the risk that um, the ratings and even the data itself can be manipulated to increase the risk of greenwashing. And in terms of you know, greenwashing, data manipulation, all of those, do we have a sense as yet as to how and what for, or indeed if, regulators are actually going to hold firms, financial services firms to account? Do, do we have a sense of that at all yet? Um, I think... In the EU and the UK, we've had we've had statements that you know they're looking at greenwashing, um, and obviously, as the data comes on tap in the EU, they will be able to check. But it we're, the 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 thing at the moment is what would they actually be checking against? Because there's no valid there's very little validation of the data. There's very little data produced in the first place um, that in terms of the financial services fund products, um, you know, there's very little data there at the moment for regulators to mark against. Um, so I think it's just a lot of warning statements um, in Europe anyway. I know the, um, Henry, I'm sure will we'll speak to the SEC's uh, whistleblowing, uh, encouraging of, encouraging of green greenwashing whistleblowers. Um, and obviously we've had one or two high profile uh, heads of sustainability come and speak out against, you know, their, their various conduits. But in terms of regulatory action in Europe, we've not seen that, we're not seeing that yet. And it would be hard to see what they could meaningfully do that would be fair to the industry at this moment in time. Yes, um, as Lindsay suggests, um, the, the, the SEC has made 
a lot of noise about this already. Um, Chairman Gensler has basically warned uh, companies about greenwashing. Um, and so you can expect that they, they will bring enforcement actions at some point um, against companies who are perceived to have you know, fallen down in, or in terms of their, what they say um, their products are and what, they, what those products actually uh, are doing and whether they're you know, up to standards, so to speak. Um, but, but again, I mean, the issue here is, is you know, similar to what Lindsay described you know, in the EU, uh, we, we don't have the data. The regulators don't have the data yet. We don't even have the rules and regulations in place yet. So I think, I think that, you know, any sort of stepped up enforcement action on greenwashing is likely to be at least, you know, a year away or more. I mean, once we get disclosure rules in place and, and companies start providing data, um, then it, it makes, you know, the life for regulators a bit easier in terms of finding, you know, who's who's not delivering on their um, commitments. If I could just come in again, Susanna, I just just again looking at the banks. Um, I was listening to um, ECB uh, Supervising Board Chair um, Andrea Arena yesterday speaking at the Institute of International Finance Conference, and he was talking again about the the stress testing, and he was. It, there were several questions from the audience about the the stress tests. What's that going to mean for um, our capital requirements? And he said, "Well, at, at this stage, you know, we're not we're not going to amend capital requirements, be, be, you know, as a you know, as a, you know, on the result of this these voluntary stress tests." And then he kind of. I probably uh, scared half those audience by saying, however, uh, it, that's not to say that it wouldn't become a supervision issue for, um, you know, for people who are really not doing doing well in that space. So, again, I think, you know, that's another area where the, once the data starts coming through, we will start to see inevitably we will see capital requirements change as a result of, um, you know, of the data. Helen, it's a bit of an unfair question, but for a crystal ball gaze as to how Asia might treat greenwashing, is there the sense that capital requirements may be an issue for them there, enforcement action more generally? So at the moment, I think most people and most businesses, regulators, they're familiar with the term greenwashing. But as Lindsay and Henry both highlighted, there's no definition and there are no rules and regulations and there isn't enough data that is actually reliable data or data that can be compared. So I don't really think we will see enforcement action in the near future, but capital requirements probably might be something that would be considered just in terms of managing prudential risk. We know that Chinese bank regulators, that's something that they focus on very much, managing prudential risk and addressing systemic vulnerabilities. Thank you. So so we've looked at, um, pretty much looked at solely at what the regulators are up to. So if we shift over to the politicians, and we've got COP26 coming up at back end of October, beginning of November. Um, and there's all sorts, I mean, let's be frank, there's all sorts of extremely nice promises that could come out of COP26 as potential. But what do we see as possibly relatively practical reality coming out of COP26? I mean, you can't do any of this transformation without a plan. 
So where are we on a plan? Okay, so um, this so COP twenty six has four main aims, and one of the one of the aims is to mobilise finance, and so. Um, and and in terms of private sector finance, that's about mobilizing towards the transition. And this is what the industry has been asking for is milestones and uh, metrics for you know, milestones so that they can then do metrics um, for financing the transition. So this is about what the EU used to refer to as brown, moving brown to green. Um, or, or winding down assets. That's you know all of that will come off hopefully if there's some kind of milestones in this mobilised finance bit. So that's the hope. Um, uh, as for whether politicians will be able to deliver that, I, I, I who who can say? I'm I'm I mean it, it. Some people are very hopeful. Others less so. Um, I'm sure Henry and Helen have have views. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's it's a huge question mark. Um, and, and this is what I think the industry, at least from a U.S. point of view, feels that the, you know, the politicians globally still have to agree, come to an agreement on these milestones. Um, whether they can do so or not, we've seen them fail before. Um, is this going to be some sort of magical moment where they can all uh, reach agreement? Uh, a lot of skepticism, I would say, um, and and moving and trying to divest, you know, have banks divest from oil and gas uh, lending is is a, is, a, is a big controversial issue here as well, um, since that is something that um, you know various groups such as Mark Carney group and others um, are really arguing for? Um, I think getting getting to an agreement will definitely be quite challenging, especially since different countries have different needs. Southeast Asian countries and South Asian countries in particular have really pushed hard for carbon emission goals that are in line with their development needs. So for example, India's current climate pledge actually links its carbon emissions to GDP. So that means that if GDP goes up, then their emissions are also expected to increase, but at a slower pace than they might have without the pledge. So it would it will be quite challenging to reach an agreement among all these countries where a lot of them are at different parts of their development and they have different needs. Coming back to financial services very specifically, um, I mean, oil and gas firms, to be fair to them, are some of the biggest investors in renewable energies. So stopping investing in, I don't know, BP or Shell or whoever, you're also then potentially stopping investing in some pretty big investments in renewables. But looking at it from the financial services end again, how do fund managers, wealth managers, pension managers wean themselves off the very high cash generating dividends that those sorts of companies pay because i mean all of our pensions are invested in oil and gas so how does cop26 help which hopefully it does but what does that transformation begin to look like for financial services firms so what i have been told is 
if we get these milestones, what that will mean is that for every um, loan that rolls over or or new loan um, that the banks issue, they will require you know um, adherence to those milestones and uh, and funding will be dependent on hitting those 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 milestones um which you know will be maybe winding down or I, I don't know particularly how it how it specifically examples but so I think that's that's one way um and also um the um I just want to just touch a second on um something that the the biz paper highlighted and it it was quite complementary towards the work that um the ICMA, um, the International Capital Markets Association, has done on its green bo- sustainable bonds because they take an entity basis. So for your example of, um, take your example of BP, Susanna, BP is also, like they are the largest uh, fitter of electric car charging uh, devices in the UK. So they, you know, there are, there are bits of their business which are clearly green. Um, but what... Um, so, but what the, the ITMA bonds, this entity idea is that you have to you have to set that in context of the entire company, and so we'll start to see those kind of numbers, I think, coming through as well. So, like you know, BP might get a, I don't know, I, I you know what kind of score it might get, but um, so that will help again. I think will help with the with the with the trans transition. This kind of ability to have an entity view as well for investors. We're back to the need for high quality data, aren't we? I mean, it comes through time and again. Henry? Yeah, no, exactly. And and I think, you know, if you just look at the oil and gas sector, you have a lot of diversity. Let's use that word in terms of where they where these companies are in, in terms of renewable energy. I mean, BP um, is, is out in front. There are other large uh, companies such as here in the U.S., Exxon which have come under a lot of criticism and, and, and fire from activists and, and others about their lack of movement in terms of um, renewable energy. So, you know, it's, 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 it's not, a, a, all of these companies are, are, are at different stages, let's say, in terms of their uh, commitment and actual, you know, action on, on renewable energy. Hmm. From the Asian perspective, I mean, is there a, a particular Asian slant to the need to transform away from the high cash generating dividends from older industries? So I think the common point data that will go a long way in helping the transition, but I also think that regulatory guidance and regulatory incentive is much needed um, to incentivize financial institutions, investment funds to move away from these investments. If, if they don't have that business incentive, it will be quite hard to get them to make drastic changes in a short time. Well, there's an absolute shopping list of takeaways for compliance officers. I mean, from my perspective, I mean, we've mentioned several times that things are very much still evolving. It's very much still a watching brief and firms really do need to watch. But I would also suggest that they need to engage This is such a different risk, climate risk, and the whole ESG uh, perspective. And firms absolutely need to engage with policymakers, with regulators, if need be, with politicians, because it's one of those areas where 
international coherence of standards, international coherence on data requirements would just make everybody's lives much more much simpler and much easier. But also the other thing is bad regulation does nobody any favours and it could actually make the efforts to control and calm climate risk make it worse rather than better if we get all of this wrong. So on that slightly gloomy note for everyone to keep watch, um, Henry, I know we're on a waiting game with US regulators, but what are your takeaways for compliance officers? Well, I would say two things. Number one, um, just as know your customer, you know, rules and applications and the anti-money laundering part of the organization are well entrenched. You know who your customers are um, in terms of uh, pollution, uh, you know, those those companies that run a high risk with um, uh, regulators, uh, oil and gas companies, so on and so forth. So you can do you can start and many large firms are already doing this. Um, take an inventory of your client base, understand what your exposure is to those companies that are at risk and you know, start organizing yourself. Um, again, you know, large, some of the largest institutions are already well down this path. They've formed ESG groups, risk groups, and, and they're collecting this information about their client base. So that's, I mean, that's number one, that can be done ahead of any new rules and regulations. Number two, I think is look at your talent pool, right? Look at the skills that you have. Um, you know, as Susanna mentioned, this is a new and different type of risk. This is not like credit risk or liquidity risk. This is new, a new terrain for banks. And I think there's a real question mark whether or not you have the right skills and the right people, you know, in compliance and other, you know, risk functions. Um, so make sure that you you do that inventory, not only of your clients, but also of your, you know, staff and uh, make sure that they're up to speed in terms of these issues. Um, and if they're not, perhaps you need to go outside and get the right people. Wise words. Helen, takeaways from your perspective? Similar considerations. There's definitely a lot of regulatory change happening at the regional level in Asia right now, and businesses need to really think about resources and ensure that they have the right resources, whether it's reg tech or technical staff or even ESG consultants that are familiar or at least know how to interpret some of the new regulations that are coming out, ranging from things like waste disposal to labor practices to third-party risk to financial disclosure. So it really is everything almost I would also say that equally important is to consider any compliance or transition risk that is arising from the implementation of ESG regulations in other jurisdictions, especially Europe. Thank you. Yes. And and last but certainly not least, Lindsay, what takeaways from your perspective? Yes, yeah, so I I won't I won't add to I I agree with everything that Helen and 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 Henry have said and I and I won't repeat it. I just want to maybe contextualize it for the UK. So obviously the SMCR already applies for there there is an individual in every financial institution who is supposed to have oversight of climate risk at least. And so that mapping exercise and those and 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 how that 
spreads out through organisations. So I think those the, the, the maybe well, UK should really be a bit further ahead because there's actually somebody senior on the hook if if it's if it's not done. So I think we're we, we're we're starting to see that. The only other thing I I, I wanted to flag was um just really not to forget the the G in the ESG, um which I know is 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 one of Henry's uh, uh key points, um but. In terms of, uh, there are there are a number of sort of um, behavior indexes that are they're coming um, on stream, um, such as um, Violation Tracker is one that's in the US. The UK is getting its own version uh, very soon, and so I think just keeping a watching eye on what's on there as well, because you know that's a useful you know, along with fines for pollution and, and everything. That's a, a useful uh, validation uh, 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 thing to throw into the mix. And yeah, that, that's, I'll leave it there. Thanks. Goodness, great conversation. Thank you very much for, for all of your contributions on, on that. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. We hope you found it both interesting and useful, and I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anyone. We will be coming back to ESG in future episodes. Um, I'll include a link to a couple of articles which go into a bit more detail on the issues we've discussed in the episode notes. I'll also include a link to our new ESG report, which I highly recommend in the episode notes, together with a link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. Last but not least, as ever, we would very much appreciate it if you take the time to review the podcast and do let us know for any topics you'd like to be discussed in future episodes. Thank you for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.